In 2004, when the tsunami hit the islands off of Indonesia, killing 167,000 people. And yet, on a nearby island, an island named Similu, just 60 kilometers from the epicenter of the quake that caused the tsunami, only six people died in a population of 70,000 people. The reason for this was down to an old storytelling tradition called Smong. Children growing up in the island were told stories by their elders passed down to them. And at the end of every story would be this instruction or warning. If a strong tremor occurs and if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. So when a strong tremor occurred and the sea withdrew, everybody upon the island knew the gravity of the situation and what to do. If the storytelling institution of the Smong had not been treated with the utmost seriousness and conscientiousness, it could easily have resulted in a lot of lives being lost. Literally thousands of lives were saved that day because of their discipline to ensure that they didn't lose this ancient wisdom. For generations it seemed unnecessary, but they'd done the discipline of telling these stories over and over again. Well, today we're talking about something that is like that. It's part of our tradition as a group of churches, but as a Christian people. It's part of our faith. It's something that we ought to and need to uphold. But it's something that I personally am sad to say. I don't think I have done my part in upholding this tradition and the importance of what I'm talking about today to the degree that I should have done. So, we had, with today being like a, a reset Sunday, as we're talking about what the church is that we want to be and where God's calling us to, it's with that in mind, with this intention in mind, that we're going to be considering together something very important about the kind of church that we want to be. In Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it says, Let's move on from the foundations. Foundations, and he says, Repentance and faith towards God, teaching on baptisms or ceremonial washings. Let's move on from those foundations. We say repentance and faith. Yes, we understand that. Resurrections, baptisms. Yes, we understand that. Eternal judgment. Yes, we understand that. Tick, tick, tick. We've got these foundations. But what of this one? The laying on of hands. It's unusual. It's not often part of a foundation of the Christian message. In the New Testament, hands were laid on people and they prayed for them in order to commission them and to send them off. To commission them to what God had called them to do. But... Those laying on of hands to commission people came only after an initial laying on of hands for something else. But what for? Well, um, based on the tradition of the teachings passed down, we can read in the second century a church, early church father named Tertullian. He writes at the end of the second century, he says this, In the water we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit following baptism. Then the hand is laid on us, invoking and inviting the Holy Spirit through blessing. In the third century, a church leader called Cyprian, he says something similar, that the Holy Spirit coming upon a person occurs through the laying on of hands. So the foundation, the smong tradition held for the first century, the second century, the third century, building from the New Testament was this, that someone becomes a Christian and afterwards 
They're baptized in water as a sign of their covenant commitment to learn from and follow Jesus. They die to their old life. They say, I want to follow the way of Jesus. And then someone lays their hands on them that they would be filled with or receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as a church, we're talking about the blueprint in the Bible of God's church, the kind of church that we want to be. And today I want to talk about a church and how the church is meant to be spirit-filled in everything that it does. We're meant to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, We're meant to be fueled by His might, His strength, see, His miracles at work in us, to which we'd all probably say, agreed, I like that idea. But that starts, you could say, is only possible after the hands have been laid on a person for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to talk about today. If you've got one of these books, you can, if you haven't yet got one of these books, we're going to be talking about this further in life groups, but I'd encourage you to grab one of them and follow along at home. Now, King's Church gets known for lots of things. And when people join us, they'll often comment on the type of church that we are. People sometimes say, you're a lively church. It's true, lively. Or they say, you're a modern church. And we think, well, I don't think that's a bad thing. But being lively and being modern has never been part of our aim. It's a bad goal to shoot for. The goal of King's Church and the goal of churches that we're in, that a family of churches with, has always been our goal is to try to express a form of Christianity like we see in this book. And actually, in actual fact, when churches like ours started, it started by people getting hold of the book of Acts and saying, what does this look like today? And it started with this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that transformed the church in the early days and transformed us and our churches as well. The Christian writer, a man named Gordon Fee, he says that the Apostle Paul saw the Spirit as the key to everything in the Christian life. The key to everything in the Christian life. Not long ago, a Chinese house church leader commented, he said, when Chinese believers read the book of Acts, we see in it our own experience. When foreign Christians read the book of Acts, they see in it inspiring stories. His point is that their experience of opposition and of persecution impacts how they read this book. And because what they're going through seems to line up so much with what the first Christians go through in the book of Acts, their conclusion is it's the same dynamic going on. We need the same thing that they had. For us, foreigners in the West, with our long history of church, we think the book of Acts, inspiring stories that got the church going, but we've got 2,000 years of history of inspiring stories. It's my concern that we could very easily very quickly lose the essential and beautiful doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit if we're not careful. See, for all of our talk of being adventurous and being Christians who live an adventurous Christian life, we think that's great, I want that. Truth is, it isn't possible without this clear foundation in place. When I finish speaking today, there's going to be a response. There's going to be two responses from this morning's message. The first is, as we gather to break bread around the tables and juice at the end, there'll also be a group of people at the back who are going to offer to pray for anyone who'd like to be prayed for to receive 
a baptism in the Holy Spirit, to experience God's filling them with the Holy Spirit. That's the first response. The second response is that on Tuesday night at my house, you're invited for an evening where we're going to talk more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and pray more for this essential experience in the life of a Christian. You can sign up by talking to me or by Rodney or by using your app, Church Suite. Uh, That's how you can sign up for Tuesday night. But there's two responses. That's where we're going. Let's talk about a few things. It's weird having one hand. This morning, I want to talk about three things. One, every Christian has received the Holy Spirit. Two, every Christian ought to also be baptized in the Spirit as a subsequent event in their life. And three, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a noticeable event in the life of a Christian. I want to show those things through the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to flick around to various bits and bobs as we jump around. Some will appear on the screen, but not all. The first thing I want to mention is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's letter to the church in Greece. He says there, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. In Romans 8 verse 9, you're not going to be able to jump around to all of these, are you? In Romans 8 verse 9, Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And in John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian... You've put your faith in Jesus. The Bible is clear. You have only been able to do that because the Holy Spirit has come to you and has revealed Jesus to you, has revealed your need for Jesus to rescue you and has revealed and given and empowered you to make a decision to follow him. If you're a Christian here today, you have the Holy Spirit in you, living inside you, dwelling in you. Paul's letter to the Ephesians also says, Prior to becoming a Christian, when you were outside of Christ, you and I were dead in our transgressions. Before you became a Christian, the Bible says you were spiritually dead. A de- death basically means to be cut off from something. Before you become a Christian, you are cut off from God, spiritually dead, unable to respond to God. And then the Holy Spirit comes to you and enables you to choose to repent from your sin, to put your faith in Jesus. Becoming a Christian and receiving the Spirit in that sense is, by and large, a passive event. You don't know it's happening. All you know is that you feel moved enough to want to respond to the gospel when you heard it preached to you. Every Christian has received and has the Holy Spirit inside them. So we, ha- we should have none of these, we should have none of this talk of. Um, That church has the Holy Spirit. Or when we gather, I hope the Holy Spirit comes to our meeting. He's here. He's always here. The presence of God is always with you if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. Number two, every Christian, however, also ought to be baptized in the Spirit, which is a subsequent event from becoming a Christian. Every gospel story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records John the Baptist preparing the way for his cousin Jesus. And part of John's speech that he delivers is, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming after me, who's, you know, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. One is coming after me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Actually, we read this in um, John chapter 1, verse 32. It says this, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. That's Jesus. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, He's the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Which causes some discussion among theologians over the exact meaning. So Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. Therefore, when we become a Christian, we receive the Spirit because we can't believe in Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. Does that mean, therefore, that every Christian has, just by believing in Jesus, been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And that's where a lot of the discussion takes place. Flick again with me to the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 20. This is Jesus after his resurrection, after he's defeated death and been raised to life. He then comes to a group of Christians, his disciples, gathered in the upper room. And he says to them, in chapter 20, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Jesus comes to his disciples, says, receive the Holy Spirit, breathes on them. They are believers in Jesus. They are disciples. They have the Holy Spirit. Is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Well, flick over in your Bibles one page or maybe two, depending on the size of your font and print. And then in Acts chapter 1, what we have again is this phrase that he is coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is what it says in chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus, while teaching his disciples after his resurrection in this 40 days before he ascends to be with the Father, it says, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So to this same group of people who at the end of John's gospel, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He then says to them, wait, because you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, two different writers, John and Luke, they might be meaning something different, but it is likely that we can assume from these verses, the fact they're so close to one another in our Bibles, if nothing else, is that there is two components going on here in the life of a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit at your conversion, but there's also a baptism that they're told to wait for. The response of the Christians in verse 14, it says, All of these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus says, wait. Their response is they devote themselves for the next 10 days gathering until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in the upper room where 200 or so of them are gathered in prayer, devoting themselves to this promise to wait for the Holy Spirit. And he comes in power. Tongues of fire appear above their head. Above their heads. They speak in new languages. They're given boldness and courage. And quite literally, the church is born afresh out of that moment. It's from there that the mission goes on. What happens in that moment is that Peter then stands up and he quotes an Old Testament prophet. He's quoting the, quoting the prophet Joel. He says this. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And on your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now Peter stands up and reads that to the crowd as if to say, this is that day. The Holy Spirit has come. This is that day. And so we're not waiting for a day that the moon is going to be turned to blood. And we say, now the end of the world is here. And some, some Christians talk like that. We, I've thought like that before. Um, the end of the world will come when we see the moon turn to blood, because that's what Joel says. And yet Peter's quoting that on Pentecost as if to say, this is that day. We sometimes, we sometimes say of significant moments in history or in our lives that they are earth-shattering moments or groundbreaking In those moments, the ground doesn't literally break, the earth doesn't shatter, but we know what we mean and you know what we mean when we say that. We're using a figure of speech. It's a dramatic, life-altering moment in our lives. That's what Joel is saying. On the day that the Spirit is poured out, it'll be as though the moon's turned to blood. It'll be an earth-shattering, life-altering moment. Peter says, this is that day. The Holy Spirit has come. And this will be for you. And then in, in chapter 2, reading on, Peter then says, the promise, the promise is for you, those of you who are hearing, and for your children, those who aren't here or yet to be born, and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Peter makes it clear, this moment is now, but it's now ongoing as well. These are those days for your children and for those who are far off. And then as if to explain to us what is meant by those who are far off, the book of the Acts of the Apostles demonstrates for us. As the apostles spread out from Jerusalem and share the gospel message with those who are far off. Some geographically far off, some spiritually very far off, some both. They, some of the disciples go to a place called Samaria. Samaria was... They were Jewish, I mean, they were, they were religious, they had the promises of God, but they were, they were the kind of the poorer cousin or the, the naughty brother that had run away. The Jews, the disciples, they were the, they were the in crowd, they were the ones who thought, well, we keep God's law, we follow Jesus, we're the goodies. The Samaritans, they were like those who lived in Hastings, like, well, we know they're near us, but they're not quite as pure as us Seafordians, we've got something that they haven't. And so in Acts chapter 8, what happens is that, some Samaritans become Christians. Some of the disciples, the apostles, they go to check it out to see what's happened. In verse 14 to 17, it says this, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then it says in verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, those who are far off. Continuing on, Steve, uh, Philip then is, trans, is taken away to be and comes across, comes across uh, an Ethiopian court official. Again, someone who's far off, but who was seeking God. He was a convert to Judaism. He baptizes him in water, he becomes a Christian. And then in chapter 9, we've got the case of the apostle Paul, who was then Saul. Saul was an opponent of the way of Jesus, trying to stamp out the church. Saul receives a vision. Jesus comes to him. 
And then the Holy Spirit tells a man named Ananias to go and speak to him. He prays for him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit again, lays his hands on him. Holy Spirit comes on him. Something like scales fall off his eyes and he's transformed. In chapter 8, we've got those who are far off spiritually, those who are far off geographically, those who are far off because they are enemies of God, as if to say, even on those people there, those who are far off, this promise is for them. Carrying on, in chapter 10, Peter goes to see a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile. And Gentiles were considered unclean. Those were the ones who were really beyond the pale, worse than the Samaritans. And while Peter's speaking to Cornelius, before he's even finished his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. They're all speaking in tongues and declaring the praises of God. They're transformed. The Holy Spirit has fallen. So Peter reports to them, even even on the Gentiles. And then in chapter 19, you've got the case of them going not just to the Gentiles, but to those who live in Turkey, to pagan, idol-worshipping foreigners who are licentious and don't know the ways of God, to those who live in Ephesus, those who are really far off. They come across them, and in chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, this is what it says. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after them, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They become Christians. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, so there's two things. They're baptized, and then Paul lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. My case I put to you is this. The normal assumption for the early Christians was you became a Christian and as part of becoming a Christian you're baptized in water and then you also have your have a believing person, an apostle in these instances would lay their hands on you for you then to be baptized not in water but in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes Sometimes being baptized in the Holy Spirit happens before you get baptized or before you fully believe, as in the case of Cornelius. Sometimes without someone laying their hands on you, the Holy Spirit just falls on Cornelius and his household. But the conclusion from the book of Acts is that this, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person in power to transform them, to live the Christian life, this is for everyone. The conclusion is that this is for you and this is for me. This is what we are as a church. We're not a lively church. We're not a modern church. Those aren't our aims. We're a church made up of a group of people who've been baptized, not just in water, but also in the Holy Spirit. My third point is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a noticeable event in the life of a believer. The word baptism means drench, to immerse in something, to be plunged into something. And you know when it happens to you. It looks different for everyone. Some say you can experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and not even, not yet, be baptized in the Holy Spirit as though those things are different. 
Well, this past week, I've been asking lots of different people, when did you get baptized in the Holy Spirit? And almost all of them have been able to tell me an exact moment when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've also asked them, what change did this have in your life? And almost all of them, again, have said it resulted in noticeable, demonstrable change in my Christian life. It wasn't just an experience. It wasn't just a religious high. What happens when you're baptized in the Spirit is different for different people. It's no one size fits all. You're looking for this. You must respond in this way. It's different. That's why it's hard to pinpoint exactly. It's why there's discussion about this doctrine. In the, in the New Testament alone, we see this. New languages are spoken. People declare the praises of God. Some recover their sight. Some are given boldness to preach the gospel. Some are given a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Others, spiritual gifting. Others, prophesy. In, in the case of the Samaritan, something significant enough happens. We don't know what it is. But something happens to the point that a local magician named Simon says, can I buy this power off you? He recognizes there's power there. Elsewhere, we're told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit brings assurance of the love of God. Elsewhere, the working of miracles. One writer says this, Frankly, there is no biblical evidence whatsoever for a baptism in or receiving of the Spirit that does not produce significant, demonstrable, powerful results in the lives of individuals and churches. Sometimes we can be afraid of talking too much about the baptism in the Holy Spirit because some people feel as though it, it's creating two classes of Christians, those who have received and those who haven't. It's not what you see in the New Testament. There's no class of Christian. This is merely an instruction that says you need the Holy Spirit. You need the boldness and power that comes. Therefore, be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's something that is on offer for every Christian, whether a Samaritan or a Gentile or a pagan living in Ephesus a long, long way away. But sometimes we can be afraid of inviting this sort of thing into our churches because of the fear that it creates a messy Christianity. Or it creates untidy churches. When someone's baptized in the Holy Spirit, sometimes it does. It looks... So I've known some people who are very shy and retiring by nature when being baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. They start laughing uncontrollably. Myself, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm quite a loud and extrovert type person by nature. So for me, I, my wife knows when I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit because I'm quiet and reverent and peaceful. Life is messy though. New life is untidy. If you've become a Christian and then to be baptized in the Spirit, it should create a certain amount of untidiness and messiness as you try to work out how to live this Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. We should expect that. I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones who says, Nurseries and maternity wards are noisy and messy. Mortuaries and graveyards are tidy, but they're full of death. Churches that are noisy and messy... Often it's, it can be because there's life there. What's the bigger concern for the church in the UK? Is it that they're just too much full of, too, full of too much life, too noisy, too chaotic? Or is it that they're too tidy, too close to death? I want to just end by sharing my experience of this. Um, actually, where's my phone? Because I have something I want to read from this. When I 
became, became a Christian. I, I, I would say I became a Christian when I experienced the power of God. Um, standing in front of a group of my peers, I became aware of the presence of God, and it left me changed. But it, it wasn't a baptism in the Spirit. I, I knew there was a God. I knew I was loved. And my life looked the same. And then when I did the Alpha course, which is a, a series of evenings that helps people explore the Christian message, someone laid their hands on me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It wasn't dr- overly dramatic. I sensed a sensation in my body, some tingling in my arms. I thought I felt hot under the collar. I thought something's happening. I then started praying in tongues, which is a new language for prayer that God gave me. Tongues sometimes freaks people out. It's, it's just a, a language of the heart that expresses things in, in noises that haven't been formed as a, as a language on earth that people understand. Tongues needn't freak us out. I understand if you're new to church, it can be like, this is weird, this isn't normal. But equally, when I go to a foreign country and everyone's talking in their native tongue, I can feel freaked out because I think I have no idea what's going on. And that's why the New Testament says you need to explain what's going on in your meetings. That there's, there's a difference between life and messy and untidy and then just chaotic. God is a God of order and not of chaos. And so it's the responsibility of churches to explain things that go on. Because it would be worse for someone to arrive in a church and think, these people are all out of their minds and just leave. That doesn't do God, give God any glory. Um, the word tongues literally just means languages. So we talk of the French tongue and the Italian tongue. And all a language is is a, is a set of agreed terms that a group of people have decided this word means that. So if I was to hold up a pen and say this is a pen, all the English people would go, yes, we have agreed. This is called pen. If I was to go to France and say, this is a pen, they would say, this is not a tongue we understand. We need an interpretation. And so they would say, no, it is a stylo. And I would say, you're out of your minds, you crazy people. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. (laughs) The gift of tongues is essentially an expression of the Spirit's longings and desires in sounds and noises and syllables that no earthly community has said, we've agreed that that noise means this. No, it's, that's why we call it a heavenly language, because it's something that's done in faith that says, God, I trust that you know what I'm saying, even though I have no earthly idea what I'm saying, but I'm expressing my heart, my deepest part of me. I'm just making some noises. I'm a child before his father. When my two-year-old babbles in front of me, I don't rebuke him and say, we forbid speaking in tongues in this house. I understand the heart behind what he's saying. Anyway, So when I was prayed for, I started speaking in tongues. And and that left me changed. I I suddenly found, as a result of someone laying their hands on me and praying for me to be baptized in the Spirit, my Christian life changed. I didn't become perfect, but I did have a confidence to express my faith that I hadn't had before. But prior to that, I knew knew the love of God to, to a degree, but a lot of it was internal. A lot of it was just like, it's there, it's deep down, it just hasn't touched my face yet. Like I know there's joy, it's there somewhere. It was after that experience that I could lift my hands in worship and express myself in freedom before God. It was after that I could go home and tell my friends about Jesus with boldness. But actually what happened is I then spent the weekend praying in tongues and going, what the heck is this? I'm just going to learn to use this gift and explore it. And I remember one evening I then sat down with a Christian friend of mine at uni who's a pastor's kid, he was from Wales, and they've got a good stock when it comes to Christian things, but he had never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he'd grown up in a home where it hadn't been talked about or taught. And so he was saying, what has happened to you? You're different. 
And so I said, well, this is what the Bible says. I mean, I didn't grow up in a church home. I've, maybe I've got it wrong. You're a pastor's kid. You tell me. So we, we walked through 1 Corinthians and talked about it together. And then he then said, okay, well, I want this. So I prayed for him. Like, I'm like, who am I? I'm the equivalent of these Ephesian pagans praying for this Christian, Welsh Christian who's grown up in a, as a pastor's son. I prayed for him. He became all emotional. I'm English. That made me feel very uncomfortable. He became all emotional and started speaking in tongues. He was full of joy. He seemed to enjoy the whole thing. Okay. Oh, that was fun. Let's go see Jeff. Jeff lives across the corridor from us in in another courtyard. And he was also a pastor's son, but he was from Croydon, so not quite as advanced as as my my Welsh friend Davith. So we went to see Jeff and said, Jeff, this is just what what happened to me. This is what's now happened to Dav. And, and he's, well, I've never experienced this. I'm not sure what I think about this. It is of the devil. So, well, let's, let's see what the Bible says. So we looked at it together, and he said, okay, well, I would like this. I prayed for him. Jeff became all emotional. This is getting equally awkward now. He's from Croydon. Londoners are not supposed to show emotion. But he's now, he's now laughing. He's not crying. He's laughing. He's happy. He's now speaking in tongues, thinking, this is strange. So the three of us are like, go team. This feels like the book of Acts. And then we said, but wait. There's another friend of ours who lives in the courtyard over there. He's from Essex, <laughs> from Romford of all places. If ever there was a serious man that we thought, well, he, we, he can be trusted with these things. So we went and saw Dan. <laughs> and we said, Dan, this is what happened to us. And he was a bit more like, yeah, I'm familiar with that sort of stuff. He said, but I don't speak in tongues. So, okay, well, let's pray for you. So we pray for Dan. Not as much emotion, you know, because he's from Essex. Not as much of his emotion. But nevertheless, he experienced the presence of God, started speaking in languages, heavenly languages, and his Christian life changed. Suddenly there was the four of us, and we were like, this is, we've discovered something here. As soon as we'd finished praying together, the weirdest thing happened. We got um, a text message came through on, on all of our phones from an anonymous number. Like, none of us had this number. And all the text message said was Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We thought, it's God. And so we looked up, we looked up the Bible, Bible verse, and it starts, Finally, my brothers. Wow. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God. That's what the text says. And we're like, this is so encouraging. We actually, we phoned this number and like, it was weird. I actually thought I was going to get through to heaven. (laughs) I was like, I was half expecting an angel to be like, you've reached the heavenly hotline. But that's not what I called. (laughs) That's a different thing altogether. That's a weird thing to say. But nevertheless, we were greatly encouraged. And actually, as I was preparing this week, I got my phone, I text Davith and I said, that was something else, wasn't it, that evening? And he said this. He said, what a great night and what an adventure it sent us on. We are doing well and enjoying the highs and lows of church planting. Of the four of us, all the four of us are now involved in church leadership. My friend leads a church in Canterbury. David's now planting out in Canada. Um, obviously, I'm here. And uh, my friend Dan is, is working with, um, uh, I can't remember the name, um, Uniform Salvation Army in Canada as well. That has been my experience, that being baptized in the Holy Spirit changed us. So to restate as we finish, God's Spirit is here with us. You cannot be a believer or meet as a church without the presence of the Holy Spirit. But also, every Christian ought also to be baptized with the Spirit, a subsequent event from conversion, often through the laying on of hands. And thirdly, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a noticeable event. Two final, just quick comments. 
the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not a one-off event in the life of a Christian. Uh, certainly there is, there is a moment where things shift. The baptism. But actually words like filling and drenching and receiving, they're used interchangeably throughout Acts. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine for its debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's an expectation. What you had, now keep, you, keep walking in the power of that. So if you can't quite remember when the baptism in the Holy Spirit was, in some respects, that's, that's beside the point. What's important is you receive it now, and you carry on living it, and you receive it ongoingly. A, a, a theological friend said to me that this is, um, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is rather like consummating a marriage. You're married legally in law. You've declared it publicly before your friends. But consummating the marriage is an important part of a marriage. As a Christian, you're a Christian when you believe in Jesus. If you were to die the next day, you're going to be with him. Because becoming a Christian looks like putting your faith in Christ. Also, as part of becoming a Christian, there's a baptism. There's a baptism in water in front of your friends that says, I am publicly deciding this. It's like the the legal document for marriage. But there's also the consummating moment of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person in power to enable you to live the Christian life. And a, a healthy marriage doesn't just consummate the marriage once. You'd expect a consummation throughout a healthy married life. Now, it can seem strange talking about consummation and baptism in the Spirit. This is why I mentioned that it was a theological friend that told me this. I trust him. And he said this, in the Bible, everything that's physical is always a shadow of something more significantly spiritual. That's why to be single, is no, you're no worse off. In fact, Paul says, in some respects, you're better off than those who are married. Because it's not about, oh, you can't experience this and you can. No, the consummation of marriage is just a shadow of the more significant connection, which is us and God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's how things work in the Bible. There's a, the physical is a shadow of the, of the eternal. That's the first comment. The second, we ought to pursue with expectation the Holy Spirit to come upon us. And for this, I want to give Martin Lloyd-Jones the final word. He says this, If your doctrine of the Holy Spirit does not include this idea of the Holy Spirit falling upon people, it is seriously, grievously defective. This, it seems to me, has been the trouble, especially during the present century, indeed almost for a hundred years. The whole notion of the Holy Spirit falling upon people has been discountenanced and discouraged. Surely one of the prime explanations of the present state of the Christian church. This is part of our smong, our tradition, our inherited wisdom that we must not lose. That we're those who pursue with expectation a baptism in the Holy Spirit and ongoing fillings in the Holy Spirit. We're going to respond together now by breaking bread. And for those who want it, to go for prayer. You might not have a lot of time for prayer, so I'd encourage you if you're able to come on Tuesday nights at my house where we'll talk more about this and pray at length together. We put it on a Tuesday night because it doesn't clash with any of the groups. The groups are our priority. If you're unable to make it because of group commitment, that's fine. Um, we'll arrange another time. It's more important. Uh, this is very important that we get this and we spend time together pursuing this. When we stand to our feet and let's respond to Jesus together, I'll pray.